This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. We've got a great interview today with Noah Oppenheim, a fisheries consultant who just completed a report for the state of Massachusetts exploring on-demand or ropeless fishing gear. But before we get into the interview, I did want to start with a little transparency. The Maine Coast Fishermen's Association is currently involved in one project testing on-demand gear within the gillnet portion of the groundfish fishery in Maine. We are also party to another grant that has been submitted for future funding that would explore additional gear modifications in partnership with the Maine Department of Marine Resources that would include a a type of on-demand fishing gear. As an organization, we do not support the adoption of on-demand gear or oppose this technology, but instead believe that we must create tools for fishermen to adapt and respond to regulatory changes that may be coming. After we recorded this interview, there was a five-day meeting of the take reduction team working to develop management measures to reduce risk to right whales from the gillnet fishery by 90%. I participated in those discussions as an alternate, and on-demand gear is being analyzed as part of many of the risk reduction packages that are going to be considered and looked at at a future meeting. So I just want to share that at the top of the podcast to make it clear that MCFA is working with fishermen on these issues and to be as transparent as possible about our work, engagement, and priorities. I hope you enjoy the interview. Today, I am talking to Noah Oppenheim, and Noah just completed a report for the state of Massachusetts where he went out and interviewed a bunch of different people to assess the feasibility of on-demand gear in the New England lobster fishery. So, Noah, on-demand lobster gear, what does that mean, and why did you undertake the study? And give me a little bit of context around the title. Let's start with the title of the study. Let's do it. We'll deconstruct this. We're assessing the feasibility of a type of fishing gear. You probably know it as ropeless. Technically, it is known as on-demand gear because there's plenty of rope and ropeless. I like the term on-demand because it is a catch-all and it signifies that this is a, a technological application. We're evaluating the challenges, the issues, the opportunities associated with this gear. This project was undertaken because there's a lot of passion around this subject. Anybody who's listening to this podcast likely knows well the tremendous amount of political pressure, the amount of campaigning on all sides about this piece of equipment. It became a flashpoint. Tens of thousands of people either wrote in on their own or joined campaigns petitioning the federal government to push ropeless gear to advance it, to permit it, and to make it a a requirement of the right whale conservation measures moving forward here. And the state of Massachusetts found itself in a position where there are still a tremendous amount of unanswered questions about the function of the gear, the way that it's going to interact in the policy space, the way that it would operate. And they wanted to answer a lot of those questions, so they hired me to go out and figure it out. So let me interrupt you there. Who are you and why would they hire you to go figure this out? Give me a little background on Noah Oppenheim. Sure. I am a fisheries policy consultant. I am a freelancer. My company is called Homaris Strategies, LLC. I'm based in Brunswick, Maine. 
and I work for fishing organizations, for government agencies, for nonprofits who are interested in working in the fishing policy space. I started this company in 2020 when I moved back home. Prior to that, I was out west running a fishermen's trade association for about three and a half years. Did some time on Capitol Hill, fished commercially in Alaska. I was a federal fisheries observer out of Dutch Harbor for a couple of years, right out of college. Uh, and I went to grad school here at the University of Maine, studied lobsters. So I've been around the block and I've seen fishing issues from a number of perspectives. I've fished, I've been a federal contractor, I have seen fisheries policy at the highest levels. I understand how power and money and policy all mix together to form this policy world that fishermen interact in, that organizations like MCFA operate in. And so I have a bit of a perspective and I know how to talk to a lot of the people, the stakeholders, if you will, who are involved in this tend to think that I can have a conversation with pretty much anybody who is working in this field. And so that experience lent itself well to the approach. It sounds like there's a very big need to have these conversations. Yeah. Why did the state of Massachusetts want to start to undertake these conversations and bring you in to facilitate that process? Massachusetts has been arguably at the epicenter of North Atlantic right whale conservation. They've had a closed area for a number of years, and they have more right whales off their coast in the winter and spring than in any other part of the Gulf of Maine. So that it's an acute area of focus. And because the closed areas that were promulgated in the last round of the, the take reduction plan the, the process for right whale entanglement mitigation has a tremendous amount of area off the coast of Massachusetts. Now, Maine also has a very large and highly productive area that has been closed to vertical lines, or as the feds call them, persistent buoy lines. So it's an issue that spans all geographies where the lobster fishery is operating. But Massachusetts in particular has this very acute need they also have had a lot of attention from fishing industry members. A group of fishermen and their advocates put a, a, an exempted fishing permit application together for the federal government and applied for the state analog to that, a letter of authorization to fish ropeless gear this year. The state knew that was coming, and, and so they wanted to get a handle on some of these operational, technical, legal, and procedural questions that they have. So let me pull us back to the 40,000 foot level and just for context say the right whales are a endangered species in uh, the Atlantic Ocean. There's less than 400 of them left and a handful of NGO groups came together and sued the federal government saying you are not doing enough to protect this species. They won that lawsuit. And so that went back to NOAA Fisheries, where they started a process through the what you call the TRT, the Take Reduction Team. And they essentially came back and said, the fisheries need to reduce risk. Part of the problem is that whales are being tangled in fishing gear, and then they are either dying or they are less able to reproduce because of the stress that they are under. So they determined that a certain percentage of risk needs to be reduced within the Atlantic, Georges Bank, Gulf of Maine areas. And so 
there is a lot of arguments on both sides as to the validity of risk reduction and the necessity of that risk reduction in different areas to different gear types, et cetera. I don't want to get into that. We've, we've talked about that on this podcast with Terry Alexander in the past, and I know that we'll be having another conversation in the near future around that. But for this in particular, uh, there is one tool that has been focused on, which is the ropeless idea. So you take a lobster pot that traditionally has had a floating buoy attached to it, and you haul it up by finding the buoy, and now we want to remove the buoy from that situation, at least from the top of the water column. So really, really quickly, because you are no expert in the gear, but you've done enough outreach and conversations and understanding to describe what what is a ropeless or how did you on-demand gear what does that actually right, look what is like? on-demand gear yeah right? yeah the this type of gear replaces those time-tested and rather elegant technologies of a vertical line a buoy and a trap that might drag the gear if it can perform all of those functions it's a lobster trap there's also the secondary but very important operationally and culturally consideration of being able to mark territory, be able to, it has to perform those same functions the, those three devices do, or, or rather those three functions of a, of a traditional trap. So it has to be able to mark the location of the gear. It has to be able to float so a fisherman can retrieve the line and begin to haul. And it needs to bring a trap or a trawl of traps to the surface. It needs to be weighted so that it remains in place if there is a storm event, tidal event, fishermen know this well, but anyway, ropeless gear, on-demand gear, substitutes each of those core functions with a device that stores the buoyancy at the bottom, effectively. Keep a buoy or compressed air at the bottom with the trap rather than with a persistent buoy line, a static buoy line. Upon activation, usually with an acoustic signal or sometimes with a simple device like a timer, that buoyancy is activated, whether it's the release of a buoy or the opening of a valve that fills a chamber with compressed air that then moves the gear to the surface. At that point, it's retrieved. The systems that are currently being used, the ones that have shown to be effective at a high, high rate, are manufactured by a company called EdgeTech which has a system called Trap Tracker. It's an app-based system that is used to send a signal to the gear on the seafloor, and it releases a buoy through a pretty well-engineered system that has now been shown to be highly effective. They're, they're in the high 90% success rate. And so when that means they press a button and it comes back. You press a button, it comes back, it can be done. You can do that repeatedly, high throughput, and it will it is unlikely to fail. That is, believe it or not, a major achievement in the engineering of these systems. Because not so long ago, those success rates were far lower. But right now, we're at the point, and it's universally acknowledged, where on-demand gear can work. It can do those core functions. What we don't know is to what degree the introduction of this type of equipment into the throughput, the high pace universe of the back deck of a lobster boat. What does it mean for this gear to be used year after year 
in areas where there's a high density of we we still haven't tested those questions we haven't tested a lot of these questions and so what the report that i developed does is outline what those questions are and then our current state of knowledge about how we should answer those questions and think about them how should we benchmark performance against the status quo in the fishery whether that's, for example, the rate at which a fisherman can move through the gear. Right now, commercial lobster fishermen who are operating at a high level of efficiency are targeting around one trap a minute, 60 traps an hour. If you're moving through that much gear, you are humming, and that's, you know, that, that's, that's the high end, but a pretty common high end. They're likely fishermen who are fishing at a higher rate when they're really moving, when there are not a lot of trap, not a lot of bugs in the trap, but that's a solid benchmark. So when, when I'm looking at the title of your report, feasibility, that it means, so what you are really digging into when you're talking about feasibility is not the question of does the gear retrieve it, like get retrieved. It is the question of does this work when we actually start to bring it into the real world of what a fishing business currently looks like in the state of Massachusetts or, or the Gulf of Maine. Right. Does it work or how would it work? I mean, that's, that's the key question. Cause you theoretically, you could force this gear through regulation to be adopted. You could make the entire Gulf of Maine and areas on Georgia's bank off limits to static buoy lines, persistent buoy lines and the only option would be on-demand gear. That would put a lot of people out of business because the gear is not available right now at a, at a great degree on the, on the commercial market. And you wouldn't, that would be a way to find out how it would perform, but it, it would be devastating. So absent that approach, the way in which we're going to go from where we are today, which is a very limited number of on-demand gear systems available to a limited number of fishermen up to some level of use in the fishery, if appropriate, how are we going to evaluate where it should be used and what impact its use would have on the profitability of this highly profitable fishery? So that is fantastic context. I think we've done a great job building the foundation of why you were brought into uh, this question and why the state of Massachusetts and bluntly the state of Maine is probably really interested in the findings of this report. So how did you go about developing your findings for this report? The source material for this report is expertise that I don't have. I'm nobody, right? I'm a consultant. I've never, until this project, I had never used on-demand gear. I certainly hadn't built a business around fishing commercially and had never regulated a fishery. So I needed to contact all of the people who have that expertise, the experience of using the gear, regulating it, thinking about it. So we went out and we made a list of all the people who we thought had that experience and that expertise, contacted them, asked them for a couple hours of their time and interviewed them, developed what's called an interview guide, a series of predetermined questions and used an approach that allows for a, a conversational journey through those questions to get at the heart of the issues. We 
ended up with about 65 takers. So conducted in the end, 67 two to three hour interviews. So 140, 150 hours of recorded interview transcribed. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of pages of transcribed interview, a ton of source material and a ton of time lent by these experts to this project. It was, it, it was an immense undertaking and a lot of folks were very generous with their patience and with their expertise being brought to bear for this project. In the end, we captured the state of knowledge, the state of affairs up to the minute on what's going on with this gear, who's using it, what it's like to use it, what it's like to think about the regulatory and the legal space in which it operates. The challenge there was to synthesize that material into something that was useful. There was plenty of discussion that ranged into the hypothetical. There's a ton of opposition, to be candid, from fishermen, but so many thoughtful opinions and perspective on what it would be like to use it. There was a great deal of patience and a great deal of thoughtful input. So I'm really grateful that we were able to get to that point where we could put aside for a moment the antagonism around this and just speak about where this is all heading and what it would mean. So once we developed that source material and we held a workshop last October down in Massachusetts, invited the same set of experts and had a pretty interesting cross-cutting dialogue around these issues, all of that put together informed this report. The material itself was really useful because the ability to quote anonymously the words of these experts themselves, it has a lot of analytical context. And the report had a number of very candid quotes. And I encourage everyone listening to this to to take a few hours and read the report. It's long, it's pretty dense, but it was written in a way that hopefully is readable, that engages a reader. It assumes that the reader knows about the fishery. You have a baseline understanding of the concept of on-demand gear, and you have a basic understanding of how the lobster fishery works. So as much as I love telling people to go read a 100-page report, give me the cliff note version. You know, if you had to list three big takeaways or places that you would suggest people spend a little bit of time thinking about it, because it is a great report, but most people aren't going to read it. So what's the takeaway? What do we need to know that if this is going to be a process moving forward, where do we need to start thinking about where fishermen, community members, scientists, regulators, etc., start spending some time thinking about the friction points? Uh, that you identified you asked for three takeaways i'm going to give you four. Oh, okay so bonus bonus takeaway the the report was divided into four sections utility technology legal and regulatory issues and socioeconomics utility there needs to be a concerted effort to study on-demand gear benchmarked against the current performance of the lobster fishery with static buoy lines, with persistent buoy lines. That needs to be a core part of any research enterprise being undertaken 
in lobster fishing grounds in order to answer that very fundamental question, what will it be like to use this gear relative to what's going on today? You can answer, you can unlock a tremendous amount of questions if you know that. Technology. There needs to be an effort to coordinate the development of open source universal technologies that can be used across platforms. Right now, there are some discussions around that, but those aren't being developed in a way that guarantees the kinds of open source universal languages, for example, when it comes to to device communication in the marine context or underwater acoustics that will enable this to be cheap and efficient. This isn't about profiteering. And while companies who make this gear recognize they're going to have to make money off of it, this is a capitalistic system, it's business. There's got to be a way to make it cheap and affordable. And one easy way to do that is to coordinate the development of of universal approaches to the technological and electronic components. Now that's happening. It's, it's being worked on and there is progress being made every week. It seems new conversations, new approaches being highlighted. So it's, it's definitely happening, but it needs to be driven by agencies who in the end are, are likely going to be customers of this technology, just as fishermen will be. The third legal and regulatory issues. The regulatory process right now is unclear as to how authority, jurisdiction, and discussions across agencies like the New England Council, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, state marine regulators, law enforcement agencies. The door needs to be wide open for various types of approaches, but pretty soon, the folks who are making decisions around this need to state loud and clear, this is how we're going to approach it. The time's not yet ripe for that because a number of these questions remain unanswered, but I think within the next two to three years, there needs to be a clear path for understanding how the the regulatory space around all entanglement mitigation, including the the assessment of on-demand gear, feasibility and utility, but all the other approaches too need to need to just be clear cut. The fourth, socioeconomics, we've got to understand how the scalability and integrability of on-demand gear, including its use and its acquisition, impact different fishing businesses, different fishing communities across size, across geography, across demographics, like age, experience, technological literacy. And then we've got to understand once we have answers to those questions, ultimately what this is going to cost, who's going to pay for it, if it's going to be implemented. And that's a big if still, but understanding whether or not there will be support for it and ultimately who's going to underwrite this is is an unanswered question today the options are clear major outlays from the federal government to acquire the gear or to subsidize its purchase by the user or 
some sort of major campaign with environmental foundations to provide that support. But it's highly unlikely at today's price points that commercial fishermen are going to be able to afford the gear if they're going to have to fit out all of their trawls, all of their gear with it. You know, a $200,000 expense right now is, is a tough sell. Economies of scale might bring those costs down, likely will, but right now that's what we're talking about. Great. So the final kind of series of questions I'd like to dig into. So you spent a lot of time and energy going through this. We're a fisherman's organization. What were some of the fishermen's responses to your questions that stood out in your mind as either particularly thoughtful or concerning? You know, this report was developed over a really interesting period of time in the history of on-demand gear. It took place while the take reduction plan process was being litigated and decided. And, you know, the conversation went very quickly from questions about whether the gear can work to, you know, over the field season in the summer of 2021, a fisherman showing quite clearly that the edge tech system works repeatedly and reliably. Suddenly the conversation went from, we don't think this is going to work to we don't know whether it's going to work for us. That was a major evolution. And fishermen quite understandably adapted to the real-time information because there wasn't a definitive question about whether the equipment could be made to work. But now that it is shown to, the remaining questions are there. And fishermen, again, are, are just so attuned to the changes in the way the winds are blowing on this stuff. The core questions that evolved later on in this process had to do with equity about who's getting to test the gear and what kinds of programs are going to be designed to allow fishermen to test this without fear of retribution, which is a major concern. And through that equity design a system that removes the profit incentive and just focuses on testing these real-world questions. A number of fishermen from Maine who participated in the interview process and the workshop we held voiced this concern in a major way, talked about how they don't want to see people able to use this gear in closed areas for profit, to land the catch that they get from testing this equipment until anyone could. That is a different look for a testing program where currently the, the early adopters are being given the right to keep their catch and land it. To many that's viewed as unfair, but to others it is a way to motivate people to participate. So that's gonna be a major, major question. And, and hopefully fishermen and fishermen's organizations will coalesce around an approach that allows the testing of these questions to happen. It's got to happen. You, you can't just say no to on-demand gear. You've got to talk about its feasibility. So fishermen get that, and 
have a very, very intelligent approach to it. You know, I had a really great set of conversations with the fishermen who have tested the gear and they were very candid about their own issues, their own concerns, their own questions. It's not all rosy. There are still issues around safety, still questions about crew and related questions like training and education for the use of the gear and questions about how fixed gear fishermen and mobile gear fishermen are going to interact. We haven't really talked about that in this interview, but that's a major, major concern. So what do you mean by mobile gear fishermen? Sure. Mobile gear or or gear that's towed behind a vessel. So scallop gear, uh, trawl gear. And, And why is that of particular concern when we're talking about these lobster traps? Because gear conflict happens all the time anyway, when the gear is marked at the surface, not in all fishing grounds. Some areas have highly evolved cooperative agreements for the sharing of ocean bottom. In other areas, it's it's war uh, and a lot of gear is lost and a, a lot of money is lost. So it, multiply the cost of losing a bunch of gear by whatever factor increase on-demand gear brings in terms of on a cost basis. And you realize that the stakes get higher. But I also get the sense that the focus on on on-demand gear, the fact that this is a very public discussion and it's sort of it's driven by external forces means that conflict within fisheries between sectors, between segments of the fishery is going to have a public facing component that it hasn't had. And I get the sense that fishermen who might have been willing to look the other way if their gear got towed up, just cost of doing business, are suddenly going to be much more interested in seeking compensation for that loss. And fishermen are also well aware of the fact that the electronic components of on-demand gear, tracking where gear is placed and tracking vessels, means that suddenly the question marks around who might have towed through someone's gear, was it there, should they have seen it, can all be answered. And it's all trackable through server records of where on-demand gear is placed, perhaps even records of whether a mobile gear fisherman had a certain trawl show up on their plotter. I mean, that the, the record of that communication might very well be stored, probably will be, combined with the fact that VMS and AIS allows for the tracking of virtually all commercial fishing vessels participating in the mobile gear sector, certainly, and perhaps soon fixed gear as well, means you can put two and two together very easily. So suddenly the liability issues become in sharp focus and are likely to be focus of litigation in the coming years and perhaps need a renewed focus from regulators on how to address gear conflict. Absolutely. I, nothing gets me excited than more conflict within oh, our man. within our fishing communities. And I, I do, I that is the thing that I most hear from fishermen that we work with that are mobile gear fishermen, that are gillnet fishermen, um, that participate in lobster and whatnot, but it's like, how am I going to know where these things are? What happens if there's interactions? You know, there's there's a lot of concern about that. I, I, I do think that those questions will be answered. But as you said, we're at a very early stage of 
figuring out the feasibility side of putting these new types of gear into the water. And that's where it just gets really hard because you can build off the fear, off the anxiety, off of the uncertainty of what that future looks like. So with that negativity, the final question that I would like to ask you is what left you feeling most optimistic about not just this gear, but the fishing community's opportunity of the future around building a sustainable fishery, bringing this gear into that equation or not? But what left you optimistic in this process? I think that the renewed focus on community well-being and dynamics that's happening right now in fisheries generally is well suited for this moment. Maine Coast Fishermen's Association has been doing a ton of work on fishermen's well-being, mental health issues, and bringing issues that have been bottled up or suppressed culturally or institutionally to the fore. Being able to have a frank discussion about feasibility of this very different approach to catching lobster in the context of a renewed focus on well-being is a reason for optimism. It means that we will include this really important factor, whether or not this works for people or how to support people, individuals, in this discussion, in potentially a transition, means it's going to be, if it is handled, it'll be handled better than previous gear switching conversations have in U.S. fisheries. There's plenty of examples of changes that have been forced on commercial fisheries that have left communities devastated. A couple of examples highlighted in this report. Most sharp in my mind is the Western Australian rock lobster fishery, where there was this major consolidation and a, a huge percentage of fishermen were suddenly boxed out. You're out. You cannot fish in this fishery anymore. We must chase maximum economic yield, MEY, and therefore we are going to trim. And I mean, suicides, devastation, depression, it was it, all, all the things that you would predict when from the top down community members are told you, you are no longer part of this community, you are out. We won't make those mistakes this time. We, we know enough, we've talked enough about what it means to support community and institutions have built strength around that support. So I, I feel optimistic that if there is a transition, it will be it, it will be handled in a way that won't have those those worst kinds of outcomes. I also think that we're operating in a landscape where there is support. I mean, where the advocates for on-demand gear are willing to go to bat for huge outlays. I mean, the, many of the conservation organizations involved in this discussion whose representatives spoke with me talked about how there's an appetite. There was a really effective quote in this report where somebody said to me, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not worried about the technology because it's all workable. What we have to ask ourselves as 
representatives of commercial fishermen is what are we willing to give up? And I think that with appropriate design and with the time that will take to get there, I mean, we're talking years. I think that's beginning to be acknowledged. This is a multi-year project. That could be done where you won't have to give up very much at all. The, the possibility of on-demand gear being feasible in some areas and not others and having a frank and honest dialogue about it is also going to be valuable for long-term outcomes in this fishery. And I'm optimistic that there can be a conversation that goes beyond all or nothing. There are some folks who believe any vertical line in the Gulf of Maine is a threat to the North Atlantic right whale. My conversations with advocates proves that that's a minority opinion, that there are places where the fishery is benign with respect to risk. Now, we didn't evaluate risk, but in terms of the regulatory process moving forward, I don't believe that this needs to be an all or nothing discussion. And I think that the segments of the lobster fishery that can, with minimal or little or no pain, make an ad- adaptive transition. And if they're willing to do that, then that opportunity is there for them. And for segments of the fishery or geographies where that isn't going to work, or it's not something that folks want to give up, the alternatives will be there. Closures, other approaches to risk mitigation. The Massachusetts fishermen who I've spoken with at length for this project have come to value the winter closure. It, It was a huge pain when it was first instituted, but things are looking up. And you know, folks have admitted that they might have been incorrect in thinking about how the Cape Cod Bay closure might have impacted their bottom line. I mean, of course, they had every reason to feel that way several years ago. It was an unknown question to test. But closures, when whales are present, may very well be the solution that is needed in a majority of circumstances. But what we have is time to be able to evaluate that. So in the end, what I'm most optimistic about is that this report has shown the magnitude of the challenges we have. And it's shown in clear, universal terms that a systematic approach to evaluating the feasibility of this gear is the path to success ultimately. We've got a roadmap coming out. The The feds are going to be publishing a roadmap to ropeless, as was called for in the biological opinion for North Atlantic right whales that's expected later on this year, based to some degree on this feasibility study. So if that roadmap reflects the research needs that we have identified in this report, then we've got a long-term vision and hopefully one that is cooperative, that is 
comprehensive and that is based on equity considerations. It'll bring fishermen in. It'll have room for skeptics and proponents alike to evaluate these questions and, and to lower the temperature a little bit, to move past the all or nothing brinksmanship and focus on answering real world questions with real world experience. Noah, that is a fantastic way to pull this all together at the end. Thank you for taking some time this morning to walk us through this to better understand your process, where you came to, and who you worked with. That was that was really insightful. We will be posting uh, a link to this report in the blog that is connected to this podcast. And we'll also have Noah's contact information included in that. So if folks have individual questions that they'd like to follow up on, Noah, despite being a consultant, is always very generous with his time and knowledge and experience. So Don't thank hesitate. you. Yes, you've been, you've been fantastic this morning. So Noah, great seeing you. Thanks, Ben. Maine Coast Dock Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Doc Talk, you can visit our website, maincoastfishermen.org.